agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Carson. Hey, good morning, Mike. Hey, Jay, how are you doing this morning? I, uh, for for those of you out there who uh, have been wronged by Mike, I just want to say I am your justice uh, and I am your retribution. It is a it is a long list, I am sure, and so it is good to know that you can turn to Jay or Donald Trump, or you know, it's it's important to have justice and retribution. And I probably turned to you before Donald Trump, but that's just me. Anyway, so we have a lot to talk about today. We're going to uh, open with uh, Silicon Valley bank failure and just banking and bank bailouts, or maybe that's not the term in general. Uh, the uh, potential TikTok ban. The Biden's approving the Willow Oil Project in Alaska, Ron DeSantis's remarks on Ukraine. So a whole bunch of stuff we have to get to, and we're going to get started in just one second. Okay, so Jay, in the last week, as I'm sure you know, listeners certainly know as well, there have been three bank failures in the United States, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, Silvergate Bank, and Signature Bank. And the failure of a fourth bank, First Republic, was averted thanks to an injection of $30 billion from J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Citigroup, and Wells Fargo. And of those three failed institutions, SVB is the largest with $209 billion in total assets, followed by Signature at 110.3 and Silvergate at just 11.3 billion. And while the FDIC insures depositors, that limit is $250,000, and that's far less than what many depositors had in those banks. In fact, 94% of the total deposits at SVB were uninsured, 90% at Signature were also over that $250,000 limit. And both of those numbers are considerably higher than the 47% average at the largest U.S. banks, according to uh, S&P Global. Early on, the Biden administration announced that it would make all of the SVB and signature depositors whole, but not bail out equity and bondholders. And President Biden on this commented, that's how capitalism works. Though, to me, at least, it's sort of hard to square that with the uh, decidedly interventionist move to repay depositors who knew they had significant uninsured funds in the banks, but more on that in a minute. The decision to repay depositors was based on the determination that not to do so could spread contagion to other mid-sized and smaller banks and thereby threaten the health of the larger financial system. And there's a provision in the law called the systemic risk exception that gave the administration the authority to take this action. Now, Republican Sheila Baer, who's the former chair of the FDIC, said that the move was puzzling. Her comment was, this is a $23 trillion banking system. It just doesn't make sense to me why banks this size, their failures would cause systemic ramifications. Now, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, testifying before Congress this week, faced questions from legislatures really of both parties about whether depositor bailouts were a new norm. And Yellen said that that wouldn't be the case, though I would say that skepticism is warranted given what we just saw. And the administration has emphasized that this depositor bailout, the, the cost of which won't really be fully known until the assets of the failed institutions are sold off, it won't be paid for by taxpayers, but it will be funded through a special assessment from banks as provided for uh, in the law. 
And, you know, Jay, there's a lot here, but in thinking about this issue, uh, I keep coming back to a quote from uh, Martin Luther King, uh, who said, uh, we all too often have socialism for the rich and rugged free enterprise capitalism for the poor. And boy, that sure seems to be the case to me in this instance. So what's your take on this? I, I think that's that's a uh, 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 good analysis, I think. Um, so of, you and I of, and uh, Dr. King uh, agree. Yeah, when, when, <laughs> when Mike and, and uh, Martin Luther King agree, who am I to, who am I to uh, jump in and, uh, and disagree? Um, Yes, I, I think that's that's the case, uh, it, and I'm I'm you know there 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 are a whole lot of things that are reasons that I'm I'm troubled by this. Another a great quote that I read it was from a uh, this was in the Wall Street Journal from a former um, Fed um, uh, uh, regional uh, uh, chairman uh, was that capitalism without failure is like religion without sin; uh, it just doesn't work. Um. And, and I think that, that there's something to that too, right? That, you know, that's part of, uh, if we don't, um, if there isn't a mechanism that enforces essentially market discipline, um, then uh, you're, you're going to get less and less discipline and you're going to get more and more um, <laughs> incorrigible children, as it were, right? Um, that, that you continually have to bail out. So, um, yeah, that, that, um, uh, I think sums it up. Now, I think you and I may disagree on a lot of the reasons of how we got there, um, but uh, I think there were there were a lot of reasons uh, how SV, SVB and uh, these other banks got where they are. Um, and, but uh, and the social yeah, the reaction. I think we I think we would, would agree on. I don't, I don't know. Maybe we don't agree. Um, but uh, yeah, that this sort of automatic. Uh, well, of course, we'll insure all of your deposits. Uh, even though there was never any deal to do that, and you were very sophisticated business people, and um, again, these are these were not mom and pop type um, uh, yeah, operations that were that have more than two hundred fifty thousand um, uh, dollar deposits. Now, I suppose you could say a lot of small businesses probably fit in that category, um, but when you point out that ninety four percent of their deposits um, were above the the two hundred fifty thousand dollar threshold, which again, that's the, the FDIC threshold was created to to protect your mom and pop uh savers uh and your small businesses and and those types of, of entities yeah um you, you know in terms of how we got here uh, there, there's a there's a way of looking at what from what i read is uh is the question is well was it a bank run by idiots or a bank run by idiots and, and i kind of like that i think it's a little bit of both actually you know uh in, in that it's pretty clear that svb and in terms of its bond holdings they they knew that interest rates were going up the fed telegraphed that so much and, and they put themselves in a bad position and then the uh very concentrated tech sector folks right i mean the bank was so very undiverse diversified, you know, decided to go ahead and take the run on and that kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy sort of thing. And so I think it's, like I said, a little bit of both. And, and certainly the executives of, of Silicon Valley Bank, they're, they're going to be fine. Their CEO makes something like, or made something like around $10 million a year. And, you know, their, their senior team were all making three or $4 million a year, but, you know, they have- That'll, that'll, wrench, that'll wrench you like a uh, one room uh, uh, 
one bedroom apartment, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Cry me a river, right? But but you know they have like eighty five hundred employees, and right now, from what I understand, they've been asked to stay on for forty five days at one and a half times their salary. But then after that, well, you know, so it, it's there's there clearly was a lot of poor uh, uh, poor management, right? And also some poor decisions by uh, one of the first things you learn about investing is, right, to make sure you diversify, not put all your eggs in one basket. And so Roku deciding they're going to put, what, like around half a billion dollars into this, you know, <laughs> hey, that's a that's a pretty poor business decision. And like you said, there should be consequences. And uh, clearly there, you know, there haven't been at least not, you know, significant consequences. So so in some, in some um, instances, though, I think sometimes those poor businesses decisions well are are made also by poor business decisions by the by the bank in terms of a lot of the depositors um when you when you have the loan contract uh you have as a provision in your contract that you must that must be your, your exclusive bank and you do all your banking there um uh the reason for that is so that if if things do go south for the company uh the bank can grab the cash first um before anybody else so i think there were a lot of that those loans in place but which, which on, on on its face makes sense if you're a bank to do that. But the problem then is if you're only lending to that one type of customer, um, uh, that that in that one sector, um, and especially a sector that is especially sensitive to interest rate right, uh, increases, um, you're putting yourself at risk. The other the other thing, and this is <clears throat> this is I'm I'm not a um, Mike, you, you may be interested. I was the uh, legislative aide to the Ohio House Banking Committee um, way back in the day. Um, so I know a little bit about banking, um, but uh, but I don't know. I should. I, I'm, I'm certainly not not an expert, um, but I, I have um, worked uh, in that field a little bit. Um, and and the, the issue that that I've read about, that, which I think is is fascinating, is. You know, when you measure uh, risk, there's different types of risk, and they, these were uh, the banks were investing in you know safe assets. They were government uh, uh, treasuries, and the sense is, well, look, that it, that checks the box as a a safe asset. But what they didn't look at was what's called the durational risk, um, which is okay, how long you're holding them. Uh, and uh, when can you liquidate them, and at, at, at what at what penalty? Um, and that was the, the bigger problem. And, and I think, from a regulatory standpoint, and this is, you know, gets to me sort of under the way regulators were looking at this. There was one one box to check, and it's like, are you invested in what are considered, you know, quote unquote, safe assets? Um, and and the answer is is absolutely yeah these are the, the safest assets you can get, but they didn't ask the second question, which was okay if you had to liquidate these assets you know tomorrow where where would you be? And, um, and I'm glad you and, brought that up because uh, this you know this goes back really to the 2008-2009 financial crisis. And one of the things that came out of that was the Dodd-Frank legislation in 2010, which was largely a uh, a Democrat thing. There were no Republicans who voted for it in the House and three Senate Republicans who voted for it. And those were kind of the usual suspects. Well, two of the usual suspects, Collins and Snow and then then Chuck Grassley. But the idea was that initially was that all banks who had assets of over $50 
$50 billion would be subjected to things like stress tests and have an unwinding, a plan, a clear plan for how they would unwind in this case and capital requirements and things like that. But but from right from the beginning, a lot of these, it's weird to call, you know, 50, 100, 150 billion small, smaller banks, but these smaller banks pushed back against this pretty hard and said, you know, listen, we can't compete with the big banks if you're putting this regulatory burden on us. And so they lowered it in 2018 through something called the Economic Growth Regulatory Relief and Consumer Protection Act that lessened that oversight, dropped it down to $50 billion, or sorry, up to $250 billion. And at the time, there were a number of people who said, hey, this is a bad idea because these banks are going to be that are under this $250 billion mark. They're going to be too big and too connected. They still pose some risk. And so we shouldn't be doing that. I mean, Elizabeth Warren said it. Nancy Pelosi said it. A bunch of folks said it. But that was essentially ignored and that they passed this, you know, this uh lessening of the severity, if you will, the regulatory relief from Dodd-Frank. And, and you know, partly at the urging of, by the way, Barney Frank, who uh, coincidentally ended up right. on the who board is, of directors. The yeah, he was, yes. yeah, he was on well, the board of uh, Signature Bank uh, and he was paid something like two and a half million dollars during his time on the board. And he was leading the charge for this saying, oh, you know, I was wrong and it should be lower. And, you know, there's a yeah, OK, that's uh, seems a little suspect. But my point here is that if you're going to if you're going to bail these institutions out, then you need to have the regulation to make sure they don't take the crazy risks. Because, I mean, you have to have you can't have it both ways. In other words, you can't be lightly regulated and bailed out. That just doesn't work. And so we need to change that in some way. And I, I would expect you would agree with that. And I know I agree to some some extent. Um, that's it. I, I don't know that because I, I think you can. You can agree to both. You could say that the the drawing the line at um, uh, fifty billion um, was too low, uh, perhaps two two hundred fifty is too high. Um, you know, so I, I think you can, and, and I, I I'm sensitive to the idea that um, regular regulatory costs are going to hit smaller banks harder, um, and there there ought to be uh, some some safety net. No, not safety net, but uh, um, realization that uh, um, if you want a competitive banking system, um, you need to make you need to have a regulatory system um, that that smaller institutions can can work within, uh, and that's not just a um, built in so that you know they're they're forced to merge, forced to be bought out, uh, or or you know or close that way. Um, but there's a point, Jay, there right? before you get to the other point, there's a point I think you'd agree at which uh, encouragement of competition becomes protectionism. And I think this is a real issue because, you know, in, in almost every town in well, America, it's almost the other way around. Well, I'd say in almost Go any ahead. town in America, there is you, know, you have your local banks. Right. And the, the bank, the bank owner, bank president, those folks are important people in the community. They have a lot of sway. And so there's a lot of support in Congress to help. It's just kind of like the same way with car dealerships. Right. Which is why they tend to have a lot of influence in Congress, maybe more than you might think. But I think at some point you you can, like I said, cross that line for you're doing, you're not just encouraging competition, but you're protecting 
businesses that really shouldn't in in the nature of capitalism should go in because it's not like we don't have competition among the largest banks in this country. We certainly do. And so I think it's reasonable to say, well, at what point are we going too far and, and not just encouraging competition, but protecting banks that shouldn't be protected? Yeah. So I, I, I guess I'm my well, I'm, I'm not sure how, how we're, we're Let's let's put it this way. Ideally, um, you're not protecting those banks that shouldn't be protected because they ought to be held accountable and suffer the consequences of their their own failure. Right. Um, And and I I would tend to see protectionism the other way, whereas it's the big boys write the regulations, um, knowing that smaller institutions uh, can't, you know, keep up with that. And that's that kind of kind of crony capitalism type thing that says. Listen, we're going to, you know, we're going to pass regulations that we can comply with, but it will keep out, it will, it will raise the cost of entry uh, into the market uh, or raise the cost of entry into the territory of, of where we are um, to compete against us. Um, that that type of competition. Um, uh, but that's the other the other piece of, of Dodd-Frank. And this, I think, goes to and this isn't even political. It's a matter of um, people and companies respond to the measure the the metrics by which they're measured right and and in this case dodd frank it it and, and the rules that went with it created this sort of risk um weighted capital uh, idea that you're you're base you're you're evaluated by regulators on um this you know how how risky are the assets but it's it's only checking that one box. And, well, no, there's again, more than it. that's part uh, of it. But that I mean, right. that's a that's a huge oversimplification. Well, this is this is I'm I'm <laughs> this is a Saturday morning show, and I'm trying to I'm trying to take break something down and sure into, okay into something okay. But but my point is that the idea is look, the banks knew that if they are holding, hey, we're holding all treasury bills, they're going to get a clean regulatory bill of health. Um. Uh, even though uh, common sense would dictate you're still exposing yourself to that durational um, uh, risk if interest rates go up. Now, maybe there also might have been the idea that they thought, well, look, uh, we're living in a modern modern monetary world and interest rates will never go up. Um, so we're golden. Uh, there's There could have been that presumption. Or there also could have been the presumption, which bore fruit, <laughs> was like, hey, look, if, if something happens, um, uh, surely the government's going to bail us out. Now, I don't think I don't think bankers think like that just because of the, you know, nobody wants the, the bank to fail and then the, you know, have to go to the government for a handout. Um, but there is still that sort of that that sense out there, I think, in some some cases of, well, look, if worst comes to worst, um, you know, they're not going to just just let our depositors uh, uh, hang in the wind. So and, and well, you know, they they certainly there was there's no provision in the law that, that the systemic risk exception. There's nothing that says that that uh, FDIC had to make all of the depositors whole. I mean, it, they oh, could, no, not yet. And, not at and, all. Yeah. And they could have, for instance, said, you know what, we're going to make you 90 percent whole. But but they chose not to do that, which is to me what really stinks to high heaven, because I think they could have done enough to avoid the contagion without actually saying, well, we're going to give you everything back. To me, that's just that that's yeah, no, it, it, it was it wasn't it seemed it seemed to me there wasn't even any thoughts. Yeah, exactly. Uh, even before that answer came out. Yeah. Just well, we'll um, do it. Yeah, 100%. I, I can I mean, I sort of barely remember, but then I remember from the history 
uh, during the, the 80s um, SNL crisis, um, which which actually hit Ohio uh, fairly hard. There were several uh, Ohio SNLs. And this is this is sort of the history I learned when I was on the Ohio uh, House Banking Committee um, as a staff member. Um, but, yeah, I mean, what what this resulted in was months and months of, of negotiations of, of the state taking control of certain institutions uh, and then working out this this long term deal about how this is going to work and, and how much of a haircut everyone was going to take. Um, it wasn't just this because, uh, again, like SNL deposits uh, in, a, in a state SNL would were not federally insured by the FDIC. Um, it, it's instead of uh, just taking, you know, this this step back and working through uh, a big piece of legislation um uh with multiple political compromises um this just seemed an off the cuff reflexive don't worry we got you covered uh and i think that's that's bad long term um uh for for the industry because it sends sends the signal now, um yeah but it, not, no, not, yeah. not only not only are, are we you know still in the area of, of like too big to fail we're just like nobody's going to fail yeah so well you know in in the defense of fdic and treasury they, they needed to do something quickly but but again that that didn't mean they just had to say 100 percent. they just could have said well we'll make oh, yeah, sure no, they, they still could have said we're we're seizing control uh we're freezing the funds we're going to start allowing this much to come out and so forth right and enough yeah. so you can meet payrolls and that sort of thing yeah. but we're not going to just yeah. guarantee you everything yeah and they didn't do that yeah. and you know in terms of how this is going to play out i mean the fdic is funded through charges to banks it's right around 12 cents for every hundred dollars in insured money and the deposit insurance fund is currently somewhere over a hundred billion and so Okay, you know, the Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, she's right. It's not going to be funded by taxpayers. But what's going to happen, though, is that special assessment. I mean, that's going to go, you know, basically where responsible. ATM fee. Well, yeah. You know, so, I mean, responsible institutions are footing the bill for these irresponsible institutions who are going to end up passing that along, like you said, to, to customers. So we really are footing the bill for this, which is why it's, again, socialism for the rich here. Yeah, I'm I'm against socialism across the board. <laughs> yeah, rich, poor, it doesn't matter. And, yeah. you know, I, I will I will say also though, there is we do need to consider the cost versus the benefits of regulation because I think it's right to an extent that smaller or lower restrictions on these non mega banks help them in that you know innovation economy and that can be tough to measure exactly how much and, and it's also tough to measure how much the eventual bailout's going to cost after these assets have been sold out and so forth but but I think clearly we didn't get the balance right here because the whole point of Dodd Frank was was to avoid a situation just like this where all of a sudden everyone's panicking saying well we need to do something well let's just throw money at the problem and that's i know you're not in favor of throwing money at hardly any problem no no i'm i'm yeah I'm it, same feelings as socialism yeah. no no um go ahead but i but i i would say sometimes you again i go back to what I, the, the quote I mentioned earlier that capitalism without failure is like religion without sin. Um, you, the, you, there has to be an acceptance that uh, regardless of whatever your regulatory system is, um, things, things will happen. And, it, and it's, it's, it's like, um, again, I have all the pithy uh, uh, quotes and old adages here, but it's sort of, you know, generals are always fighting the last war. 
the same thing goes with regulators, uh, right? They're always they're always fighting the last uh, whatever economic issue was. And the last time it was it was liquidity. It was it wasn't uh, what we're dealing with here. But um, not not that this not that this isn't liquidity, but it, it's liquidity in a different sense. Um, you know, before it was like the banks just couldn't couldn't get money, right? There was no uh, no money in the pipeline. Um, uh, but but in this case, the, these are actual uh, losses, and it's just the it, it's more. Let me put it this way: it's more of a cash flow problem. Um, well, I'm not I mean, making well, sense. I, I guess sort you know, of. You know, but, you know what but, I'm saying? But, it, it's it's the inability to respond uh, quickly to those um, uh, withdrawals. Well, I, I, uh, and that, that they but, didn't anticipate. But that's the problem, and that's that's the that's the depositor part of it. Where I said maybe it was a bank run by idiots because uh, because in in that sense that well, if when you have this very small tight sector and you have whatever influencer leading voices saying, "Oh my God, get your money out of SVB right now," and everyone just kind of rushes to the exit. If you get enough of that, no bank's going to be able to handle that, no matter what they have in reserve. Yeah. And so, in a way, you have to blame that. You have to blame that the tech community for being for being knuckleheads and rushing to the exits. Well, it's sort of what I'm what I'm saying yeah. is 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 that there's no regulation. Yeah. Okay. Um. That that can prevent every every bad event. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, and sometimes uh, the, what happens is uh, you will have new bad events uh, based on whatever the new regulations are. Right. Um, so which is which is which is not to say that we don't need to have regulations. You're well, not I'm, I'm not I'm not saying that just saying um, that regulations are imperfect by almost. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. By 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 nature. Then that's the whole uh, the whole point, and maybe the better route is less regulation and more risk uh, with people being um, properly cautioned and understanding that that risk. Except, except, right. More that, risk, more but, reward. But, but that's not how it works, because if you're big enough or if you're connected enough, you can take all the risks you want if you're not regulated and you know that in the end, the government has your back. And it, I mean, Janet Yellen right. and the Treasury just proved that just like it was demonstrated in 2000 and 2008, 2009. And that's, you know, like I said, that's that's the problem. With I, would even, I would even make a, a dis distinction between 2008, 2009 and this in that 2008, 2009 with TARP, TARP were, were loans. Um, that were put in to shore up uh, the bank's lending ability, um, and, and those loans were in in large part uh, paid back with interest. Um, yeah, this case this case is it's it's actual losses, depositor losses uh, that are that are just being covered, um, which is which is a bigger problem. Now, I, I suppose that you know there there might be some uh, later solution where the government says, well, you're going to fund back some of this uh, SVP or or Again, at this point, it looks like it's just other banks, the the, the more responsible actors covering the um, actions of the less. Um, yeah, because I mean, but, you know, we we had this conversation. At least not you and I didn't, but but it was had plenty of times saying like, well, the what, nation had this conversation. Yeah, exactly. Right? What's to guarantee that we just won't bail them out again and say, well, no, we won't. Just like just like Janet Yellen said, oh no, no, this isn't going to be something we're going to do. Well, of course it is. I mean, that's just how it's just how it works. Um, you know, there were, there were still a few a few lonely lonely voices in the wilderness crying out that no, we shouldn't bail them out uh, in the first place. Yes. But, 
And, you know, there's also this idea from some folks, at least on the right, that wokeness was somehow a cause. And uh, I'll say that there's really no basis in fact for this because SVB was no more woke than most other banks. Uh, Somewhere around 8% of its assets were in ESG, whereas if you take a look at the three largest U.S. banks, J.P. Morgan, uh, Chase, uh, Bank of America, Citigroup, they're all between like 8 and 14%. So if anything, uh, SVB was on the lower end of this. So I think that was just a way to say, hey, look at these these California woke folks who are focusing so much on, you know, diversity and so forth and took their eye off the ball. That that to me is just kind of a way to try to score cheap political points with people who don't really understand how all of this works. Well, yes and no. So I, I, I would because I was thinking about that and I would tend to agree the, the bigger issue is not um, it wasn't uh, wokeness. It wasn't that 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 was the major contributor. But I think in fairness, you can. <laughs> And, and I'm, I'm, I'm of two minds of this. Um, my first thought was, well, it, uh, yeah, but it sure didn't help. Um, How do you know that, if though? You look at, if you look I, I, at, wait, wait a second. You, well, let me, well, let no, me back but, off. When you wait, say, wait a second. I'm, okay. going to, I'm going to get back to you. Let me, okay. Let me okay. Sorry. Go ahead. Because you'll like the finish. Oh, okay. Um, so I thought, no, it, it probably didn't help um, in that, from what I understand, SVP, SVB was um, investing in a lot of uh, companies that, um, we're sort of these these political darlings, right? Uh, hey, we're we're about sustainability, environmentalism. Um, you know what? You know what? Do, what do you guys make? Well, nothing really. And you know how much is your? You know what are your profits? Well, we don't really have any. It's it's all speculative, and it's all sort of. Uh, there's a little bit of a a presumption of uh, look. There's a a flood of government money coming. Um, we're going to cash in on that, right? Um, I think you can argue that uh, in in that case, they maybe made some riskier loans than they ought to have um, based on that sort of social capital. Oh, absolutely. Uh, but the, that's different from the wokeness you know, thing. That's just a question about, like you said, if you so, – I mean, that's, that was part of their whole – their whole pitch is that we will help out these these startups who don't have sort of the traditional uh, the traditional yeah. uh, you know they don't actually make products yeah make at, the, at this um, point because that's how that's how that you know that's how the tech sector yeah. works to a greater extent but that's you're, different you're than investing, you're investing in some future return at some far exactly off date. yeah but that's and different that's, than the it, which is thing. which is all the reason all the more that's why interest rates matter because you know yes. there's no actual cash coming in yeah absolutely absolutely. Um, so, so to that extent, I think there is something to it um, that, you know, at least these companies were sort of, anyways, it's almost like um, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, right? The idea was, you know, you could, you could walk into any investment uh, house in Silicon Valley and you say like, hey, look, I'm starting a website too. And they're like, let me stop you there. Here's the, here's the money. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was sort of no questions asked uh, as, you know. Um, it, they were just, just throwing money out there, uh, because, Hey, anything that, that had internet attached to it was, yeah. was going to be gold. Um, I, I agree. and then there yeah. was, there was the dot com bubble burst. And I think you have sort of this, uh, ESG bubble, if you will. Uh, that's out there. I, but um, see, that's a different thing. I, I think you're conflating two things. That you're, might saying, be- you're saying, you're saying ESG is different from, from wokeness in terms of, um, like, did the bank spend too much on well, well, not only the that, EI officers or something? Right? Not only that, but I, but I'm saying that the reason they failed wasn't because of these, you know, even somewhat questionable investments. It was because there was a bank run. 
and that's that's a separate sort of that's a separate sort of thing. So that's why you know I I see what you're saying, but I think it's just such a minor thing. If to these boxers that had a little bit more social conscious and consciousness and just left their money where it was and hadn't been greedy capitalists and tried to take it out right away, we would have been better off. Well, if they'd just been um, smart, that's all. Not greedy. It just would have been smart to not. Well, no, but in, in a bank run, there's no. Yeah, there's but that's no true. Smart, yeah, right? that's right. Yeah, because it starts. Yeah, you know, yeah. you you are yeah. you are depending on on the smartness of everyone else. Yes, absolutely. That's always a losing bet. <laughs> sure. Yeah, nothing to fear but fear itself. Yeah. Right. You know, I um, go ahead. But let me, but let me, but let me finish because here's yeah, the kicker. Do. This is yeah. the the part that I think you'll like. Okay. Um, in the end, was it perhaps wokeness that saved SVP? What do you mean? Um, well, here's here. This is uh, someone posed a hypothetical question. If this had been the you know first oil and gas bank of of Houston, um, would the government have rushed in to protect those investors uh, the way they are rushing in to protect or depositors? Uh, Absolutely. Depositors? Absolutely. No you question so? in my mind. I, yeah, I, I, I mean, there's no way we could know. And certainly folks on the right want to make that argument because it's all about the money. It, it has nothing to do with the wokeness thing. Well, it's the, banking, Mike. Yes. Yeah, that's <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. Exactly. It's banking. And because these institutions were too interconnected to fail, this wasn't done, the bailout or whatever you want to call it, wasn't done because of wokeness. It was done because there was a concern about the spread of contagion to the larger banking industry, you know, and so that would have been the case whether they were they were energy focused banks or, or tech focused banks or anything. So yeah, I think that's a I, I think that's a uh, easy question to answer. So well, yes, again, it's, it's a it's a hypothetical, it, exactly. and, and you know, so we won't know. But I would I would I think we'd have to agree to disagree on that. I think if it was a different kind of uh, bank, a different um, kind of depositor. I think the reaction might have been, well, it's, you know, you so, pay your money, you take your chances. So, so let, let me get let me get this straight. You're saying that if it had been, say, the first Texas bank of oil and, you know, the yeah. destroying the environment. Yeah, bank that was heavy. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. You're saying that if Treasury had decided that there was significant risk of contagion to the broader banking industry, they would have said, well, you know, that's just too bad. Just we don't like we don't like oil companies. We're going to let the banking industry just sort of flop around. And that is that is that your argument? Uh, no, it my my argument is, uh, although that's that's maybe a variation of it. My argument is that uh, Treasury's view of a contagion might uh, be colored by um, the people who are getting sick. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, we are going to have to agree to disagree on that one because I think you're that you're entirely wrong about my, that. My like sense say, might be that that you know the the treasury and to put that in other words that the treasury might or department might look at this and say, well, it's you know a small this small sector they're really kind of insulated they're not going to uh, have that over but. Um, when it is is a gotcha. you know this is what you yeah. said a minute you're, ago it's uh, yeah. socialism for the rich yeah you're you're um, basically questioning the integrity of treasury more than I am yes okay all right all right <laughs> fair enough you know th there's one other aspect of this I, I wanted to bring up and actually it's thanks to one of our one of our listeners and supporters Jordan who wrote the, on Discord he said how is it that uh, bank failures and I think Jordan's Canadian I believe he said bank failures in in Canada. From 2000 to 2023, uh, zero. United States, 562, according to the FDIC. And and I was curious about that, so I, I looked into it. And uh, it turns out that there are six banks in Canada that account for around 90% 
of market share. And that's way different from the U.S., where our like top six account for around 55 percent of market share. And so, I, I mean, you, you have the situation where the Canadian banking industry is much more consolidated and therefore much more, I think, you know, more you have these fewer banks that are more highly regulated. And, you know, this is part of the problem, I would argue, is that right now we have 11 U.S. banks, just 11, that are over that $250 billion limit that are subject to the full Dodd-Frank regulations. They have roughly 68% of market share. Now, had we kept that $50 billion limit, there would have been 42 banks with 96.6% of market share under those rules. And okay, you can say maybe that's a little bit too much. So let's say we even lowered it to 100 billion instead of 50. Well, that would have been 34 banks controlling around 93% of the market. And so I think, and you alluded to this earlier, I think you can make a case for say, well, okay, 50 billion was too low. But maybe $100 billion is more reasonable, and perhaps that along with raising the cap on FDIC insurance, I mean, that was done after the financial crisis. It went up from 100000 to 250000 So maybe we say bring that up to, uh, uh, you know, uh, from 250 down to $100 billion and also raise the FDIC limit to say, I don't know, half a million or something like that. What do you think about that? Um, look, I could I can probably go back and forth with you on the numbers on the you know where the cutoff is. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I would be less um, uh, agreeable to raising F FDIC stuff. Uh, uh, that that would seem to be that uh, I suppose at least we're being a little more honest there, right? But um, uh, I think that that would encourage that more institutional risk, or maybe indexing uh, it at least in some way. Yeah. I mean, what, what do you think um, about that? Because, I mean, you know, it's if, if we never raise it, I mean, certainly $250,000 in 20 years is going to be well, a I mean, lot you know, less. I mean, let's put it this way. You have to raise it at some point, right, just with, with inflation and so forth. Um, so I'm not, not opposed to periodic increases, but I am opposed to the periodic increase in that um, – uh, oh, we'll just, we'll just insure more deposits uh, that way – that way they'll be insured and we won't have to do this special political thing. Uh, you know what I mean? That, that troubles me because I think that, that um, lowers uh, the, you know, take, takes more of the actual risk out of the market um, and encourages uh, uh, riskier behavior. If, if you follow me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that whole, it's almost, it's almost hazard. like, you know, it, it's the, you know, uh, hell, I'm insured. I'm going to go ahead. You know yeah. what I mean? It's, oh, absolutely. That, that whole, like I said, the whole issue of moral hazard is just huge. And you take that exactly. out and then you're just going to get this. Yeah. Moral, moral hazard. Exactly. So, um, so no, I'm, I'm uh, not crazy about doing that. Just, just willy nilly, just to, uh, just to say, Hey, these are, are more, more safeguarded. What I think the other the, the way to do it, it's almost, it's almost the opposite um, is have uh Fewer insured, uh, lower insured accounts, but uh, you know, higher risk, higher reward. Sure, um, yeah. For people who want to do that, who but the risk actually has to be there. <laughs> That's the thing. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Because ideally, you um, want lower risk, no risk, and higher reward, but it, that doesn't work in the long run. Yeah. Now it's 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 um, high risk, but you know, you don't really accept that risk. The government, you have the the you know idea that the government's going to cover it eventually. Um, oh gosh, there was something else I was going to, um, throw in there. Oh, oh, no, just to say, 
banking, and this is in in American history, banking um, is really almost, in terms of its you know constitutional uh, political um, arguments, it's it's almost a a bigger source of controversy than slavery uh, through the early republic. Right. I'm the, sure. The, the first United big, States, big second bank, yeah, that. Yeah. Yep. yep. Absolutely. The, the, the questions that really um, uh, blew up and, and separated the nation um, revolved around banking, um, which sounds weird to us today. Uh, but uh, it, it, it was the case. And, and it's almost kind of ironic. The, um, the arguments that were made in favor of, of rejecting national banking laws were later said like, hey, you know what? We could apply this to slavery as well. Um, the you know the for example the nullification mm-hmm. doctrine. Yep. Um, uh, but um, so I, I, I and 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 Im- implicit in that was uh, there was a unique uh, maybe not unique but particular uh, American fear of having these uh, large banking powers. Um, that they would be in a lot of ways undemocratic um, and that that's the more democratic, small D democratic uh, and at one time capital D democratic way to, to, to handle this was to have many small banks uh, as opposed to have your big Leviathans that, that controlled a lot of capital and controlled a lot of political power with that. And that goes, and it goes back to things like, you know, this, you know, the ideological feud between uh, Thomas Jefferson and, and Alexander Hamilton. Um, and so, so to me, I think if you're comparing, I'm just bringing the, all this up because if you say, why are there, why is Canada so consolidated while we are yeah. less? Oh yeah. I think there's, I think there's a lot of historical reasons for that. Um, another part of it is um, we have a federal type banking system, right? Where you have federally chartered banks. You can also have state chartered banks. Um and and that's a little uh, adds a little different uh, 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 complexion to it. I don't know how it works in Canada, but you have more smaller state chartered institutions uh, than in you. I, I I I'm betting you do in Canada. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure that's right. And and I, and I would I would be one who on the argues on the side of I think that's a good thing. You mean having more uh, smaller banks? Yes. Well, I, I, I the again, small, the small D Democratic uh, argument, well, the Jeffersonian I, argument. Yeah, again, it goes back to what we talked about, what I was getting at a little bit before. I think to a certain extent, yeah, it's good to have that that competition. And and there's reason to fear having one bank that has huge market share because of the power. And you can even argue that, well, you know, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, something like three point two trillion. Yeah, you could argue. I, I, I would agree. Those yeah, big things are, are too powerful as is. But. But then again, that whole argument for breaking up the big banks that that went that went nowhere. But well, in part because they are so powerful, I think. Yeah. So. All right. Well, uh, let's move on to our next story here. Uh, if if unless unless you have anything else to add on that. Jim. No, no. It's, yeah. All right. Well, let's let's go ahead and do that. So moving on, you know, n- not all that long ago. You and I talked about the possibility of a TikTok ban in the U.S. And since that time, the pressure has been really mounting for uh, what really what Donald Trump called for as president, that TikTok either sell to a U.S. company or face a, a complete ban 
in the U.S. And this week, the Biden administration told the company that if it doesn't sell its stake in the U.S. version uh, of the app, that it it will face a total ban in the U.S. And, you know, as we discussed the last time this issue came up, the federal government has already banned the use of TikTok on government devices. And a number of U.S. states, I believe 31 at this point, have taken similar action. And I should point out that the U.S. hasn't been alone in this. I mean, India back in 2020 banned TikTok along with a bunch of other Chinese apps. And more recently, there have been bans on TikTok on government devices in uh, countries including uh, the U.K., Canada, New Zealand, the Belgium, uh, the executive branch agencies of the EU. So th- there's a lot of this going on. And In this country, early this month, the House Foreign Affairs Committee uh, advanced legislation uh, called the Deterring America's Technological Adversaries Act, or the Data Act. Uh, They always love those acronyms. And that would, would, yeah, I know, that would give the president the authority to ban TikTok, which, by the way, at this point has somewhere over 100 million users in the United States. Notwithstanding notwithstanding the First Amendment, but that's something else. Yeah, well, now, uh, ByteDance, which is, TikTok's parent company, of course, uh, their executives say that they already store all their U.S. data in U.S.-based servers controlled by the U.S. tech company Oracle. It's part of their Project Texas plan that they've reportedly spent over a billion dollars to implement. And so that already secures the data of U.S. users from access you know, by China's government. And uh, TikTok spokesperson Maureen Shanahan said, you know, if protecting national security is the objective, divestment doesn't solve the problem. A change in ownership would not impose any new restrictions on data flows or access. And the best way to address concerns about national security is with transparent U.S.-based protection of U.S. user data and systems with robust third-party monitoring, vetting, and verification, which we are already implementing. Uh, and finally, Xiao Ji Chu, who's TikTok CEO, is scheduled to testify in Congress next week, and I am sure he will get a grilling from both Republicans and Democrats on the House Energy and Commerce Committee about all of this. So, Jay, I guess, do you, do you expect that we'll see a sale or a ban of TikTok at some point in the near future? And, and larger than this, is is all of this, in your view, a reasonable reaction to a significant security concern, which, you know, the FBI and other agencies have suggested we have here? Or is it just kind of an anti-China overreaction? So I, I think there's there's a security concern. I'm not, I don't know that I have the information to say whether, how how big, how broad it is. Um, when we talked about this last time, I, I think it's it's certainly appropriate for the government to say we're not going to allow TikTok on government devices uh, or devices that could tap into uh, government networks. Um, that that seems to be uh, pretty smart. Uh, I think the same thing goes for a lot of you know smaller local governments uh, making those same decisions. Um, I'm I'm less crazy about a uh, a you know total ban on on a service um announced by the president just because i i don't know that that's constitutional explain um, uh why why do you think that is well because i think it's if if you say listen part of my i have a a, a right to uh speak freely and express myself um i'm choosing to do it on uh on this platform um 
and and the government says I can't. I I think that's well, see, and, you know yeah, I have to right me, to get I, information. I I don't see a First Amendment issue here, really. I mean, because it's not banning the speech; it's banning a specific platform which poses in the in the view of uh, a number of U.S. government agencies a significant security risk. And so, yeah. well, in that in that case, I think you know we could just go and we'll ban the New York Times. Um, uh, they seem to be more of a problem than others to me. So let's you see what I'm saying. Well, yes and no, because you'd have to, to say, make to say in some cases, the platform is the, the medium is the message. Well, I mean, um, yes and no. I bet, certainly any sort of a because this isn't banning again, this isn't banning speech. This is banning a, a platform. And so even if you so maybe you would say, well, this would have to fall under strict, strict scrutiny. But but I think if you can make a, you know, there have been plenty of instances, and, and 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 maybe you could make a strict scrutiny case, right? Yeah. I, I I wouldn't disagree with you there. Okay, that maybe if you can show that the the uh, national security um, interests are significant enough uh, that it that you know a, a nationwide ban on civilian use um, passes strict scrutiny. I, I yeah, I, I could see that that happening. And and here's here's the thing, Mike. I'm not as a as a policy. Um, uh, perspective. I'm not. I'm not against people getting rid of TikTok altogether. Um, I don't have TikTok. My kids don't. Um, uh, partly because I, you know, I. I, <laughs> I mean, look. It's for me to say I'm. I'm. I don't have TikTok because I, you know, don't want the Chinese government spying on me. That's not entirely true. It's more just like it, I think it's stupid, and <laughs> I'm not interested in it. But, um, uh, yeah. So. But what I'm, what I'm saying is I'm I'm not I don't disagree with the the risks and the um, the policy uh, uh, behind uh, a TikTok ban. Um, I just question whether that would be constitutional. Sure, certainly there would be a lawsuit. And also, and, and I question I, the other thing I, I question after that is, um, you know how I like my slippery slopes. Oh yeah, um, big fan. Uh, you know, could could the next um, uh, next thing be? Well, listen, we're really concerned about. Um, uh, uh, domestic terrorism and right-wing activism, and they're going to storm the Capitol again. Oh, I get it. Uh, so therefore, let's ban X. If that that the slippery yeah. slope is your favorite logical fallacy, it for is sure. <laughs> no it question. Is. But you know, I I would also say that there are two issues here. It's not just the data that China that the Chinese government could potentially get in secret, but it's also the idea that the app could be used, the algorithm could be used to push misinformation out to users as well. And and so there, I mean, so the security- but, but I understand that that sort of falls right right into where I was with the First Amendment thing. That look, I, I mean. I, I I am one to say pretty much everything. If if the Chinese government says today's Tuesday or you know today's Saturday, which it is, um, my inclination is going to be to disbelieve that uh, instinctively. Um, right? Except, I, except my, people won't I, know I, it's I, coming I from, from the. the I I hear what you're saying, but I think, you know, users of TikTok and I have plenty of students who are users of TikTok. They don't think of it as a Chinese app that the Chinese government could be passing messages. They just think of it as a fun way to get whatever, you know, short videos on all kinds of things. So that's what I think makes it dangerous is that most people aren't going to make that connection, that association, just like most people when they saw misinformation about the COVID or the 2020 presidential election weren't saying, oh, this must be Russian bots. No, they were just saying, oh, I saw this on Facebook. It must be true. Well, again, that goes back to my point of 
as much as I, I dislike misinformation, I don't think you can constitutionally just go around banning certain speech because the government labels it misinformation. Um, much of what was misinformation one day uh, turns out to be uh, uh, actual truth uh, later on. Um, so sure. that's, again, that's my yeah. that's my First Amendment concern. But again, the government isn't banning speech here. It's banning a platform. It would be banning a platform. But, but I mean, you that's, just said, I mean, part of the reason for banning it is to prevent speech, to prevent misinformation. Right. Misinformation, prevent- mis- misinformation could also be described as speech the government doesn't like. Absolutely. Uh, or doesn't like that day. Right. Uh, but that that's only part of it. The other part of it is to prevent uh, a hostile foreign power from gaining access to sensitive data about uh, millions of Americans. So, OK. So but so but, do uh, you- what I'm saying is, is if the First Amendment covers uh, one part of it, it covers all of it. Maybe maybe you get maybe you get and again, and you go to a rational bay or a um, strict, scrutiny. Uh, strict scrutiny and maybe you say, um the the danger of the uh, data uh, breach uh, by Chinese and Chinese spying outweighs, uh, in this case, the free speech. It is sort of equivalent to national intelligence and and uh, clear and present danger, of fighting words. Those those types of exceptions exceptions. Um, and I'll, I'll but, agree with you. It's a harder case to make than in some instances because we're talking about potential abuses and not demonstrated abuses, and that gets that gets tricky. Right. And so, so, yeah. so yeah, it's not, a, it's not a slam yeah, dunk case. Be a, it would be a tough case to prove at court. Yeah. Yeah. I, to I say here's, here's the, the, uh, what's happened and, and what will happen. Cause those, ah, no, we got these, we got these systems in place, um, that protect all the data and so forth. And my sense is, uh, yeah, you do until, until you don't, uh, right. Or until you just change your mind and say, yeah, we will give it all to the Chinese. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. And and we I think we need to consider this as well in the broader political context, right, with the whole balloon incidents and the also this what well, recently reported this week that uh, China has been sort of covertly assisting Russia, sending something like a thousand rifles and body armor and drone parts doing. Yeah, they're doing this through cutouts in Turkey and the UAE. And so it's this I mean, so it doesn't sound this, like that, Mike. Yeah, so but I'm saying all of this is connected to. I argued, yeah, I argued months ago that of course the, the Chinese are helping the Russians and are going to help the Russians, and yeah, yeah. maybe not, in, maybe not in a big way, but certainly in a way that you know raises they, they would probably be doing more if if you know we weren't watching so carefully, certainly, and, and so I, so what I'm saying is that part of this pressure we have to consider this is maybe we're putting pressure on them in in this way to get concessions in other areas. These we, we should never look at these. At these in international relations, you never want to look at an issue as just the issue because it's almost invariably interconnected with a whole bunch of other issues. And certainly that's the case with China. Yeah, no, no. And I, and I agree. And, and to, to be clear, because I, I the stuff I say is always sort of misconstrued. And, and um, but I, I, I you're you're not going to find a bigger adversary to China. I shouldn't say that. That's that's an insult to the the, the good people of Taiwan. but. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I am, I am certainly, uh, you're not a fan skeptical, of China. More skept- yeah. I'm not a fan of China, uh, in any way. She- and I, I should say, I'm not a fan of the Chinese government. Right. Uh, in any exactly. Way, shape, or form. Again, yeah. Nothing, nothing but sympathy for the Chinese people. No kidding. Um, but, uh, 
and, and I'm, I'm not a fan of TikTok. Um, one, because it's run by the Chinese government. And two, because I think it's just kind of dumb. Um, but but three, that doesn't allay my my concerns about is this uh, constitutional or, or good policy? Um, I, I think the, the better, you know, so. And, and just to be clear, TikTok's not really not run by the Chinese government, but because they are a Chinese company and how the law works, China has uh, uh, the ability to access or demand access to information that wouldn't be the case for U.S. companies. Correct. And, and, no, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll put it out more bluntly. Um, every Chinese company is indirectly sure. at some point yeah. run by the Chinese government. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would agree with you on that. For in sure. a way that, that kind of, the companies in the West are not. Yes, no question. So do you think we're going to end up seeing a, a sale or a, a ban? What's your, what's your prediction on that? Uh, I think there might be some sort of a sale. Um, and, and again, I, I would agree. I don't think that solve, solves the problem. Um, that maybe adds a, a, an extra layer of insulation. And I suppose if you do have this, like uh, a robust third party review, that helps. Um, but I'm not sure how you guarantee that. Yeah, well, yeah. Right. I, yeah. I'm sort of a who, again, it, it, um, who, uh, who watches the watchman type, type situation. Um, so I'm, I'm, yeah, that's that's right. I think the I think the better the better way to go is to just get the word out. Um, hey, kids, uh, uh, TikTok <laughs> TikTok ain't cool. Yeah, that's good. Um, that's gonna work. Just, <laughs> just say no to this is your brain on TikTok. Um, just say yeah, no this to should TikTok. work. Or, or or much better. Yeah, come up with a, a you know real American. Um, uh, alternative. Well, I mean, you know, uh, Facebook and Twitter and everyone else has been desperately trying to do that, but they just haven't been able to able to replicate it essentially, you know. So that's that's the problem. And, and you know, looking at it from the Chinese perspective, I I could sort of see how they might see this as part of a kind of massive anti-China overreaction saying, "Hey, we have this service and we haven't used it for anything nefarious in any way and you're you just want to take it away because you can't compete with it." You know, and that's I it, that that in 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 the context of also putting legislation in place to try to hobble the Chinese tech industry, right? Or at least advanced, you know, semiconductors yes. and that sort of thing. And so, from China's perspective, I, I could totally understand how they 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 feel this is unwarranted. Although, obviously, we we feel uh, somewhat differently about it. Well, they also may feel that this interferes with their plans for global domination. Yeah, see, I don't really think um, they have plans for global domination, <laughs> so, you know, but that's, I think that's, that's part of it as well. But do you really um, think they have plans for global domination? Yes. Really? Absolutely. Don't you? No, no, not at all. I mean, I think they certainly want to be you know, an economic power and they are. Maybe, but maybe global, global, global domination is, is too, too strong and, and, and said, you know, partially tongue in cheek. Uh, global hegemony. You know, I don't even think that I don't even think they right. want hegemony. Hegemony is just it, it's just too much work. There's too much involved. You have too many responsibilities if you're a hegemon. But if you're just our, they got the people. They got the, a lot of people. They got, yeah, they uh, got their own problems. So no, I don't think anyone really wants this job anymore. Certainly, and so they're they're kind of glad that the U.S. is is, is stuck with it. So yeah, I. I that's not to say, certainly, like you, I am no fan of the Chinese government, but I do not think they have any real interest in American-style global hegemony, or at least not All as right. much well, as you we, might think. 
Yeah, well, I think we we can differ on that, and um, we'll see. What, and, and I would also, I just want to throw out as as far as my my slippery slopes go, if I had said um, uh, six months ago when we talked about this before, uh, I said, Mike, you know what the the Chinese? I bet the Chinese are are secretly um, giving uh, weapons to the weapons and ammo to the Russians. Uh, intervening uh, in in uh, Ukraine uh, for the Russians, that would have been labeled uh, by everybody, uh, including our government, as as outright misinformation. I don't think so. Um, and if we're allowed to be ban misinformation, that would have been subject to being. Um, I, I disagree. So. I, I disagree. I think it would depend on how you would have said it. If you would have said the Chinese are, I know for a fact that the Chinese are doing this. Well, that would be misinformation. But if you simply said, I think that it's likely that the Chinese are doing this, well, that's that's a whole different sort of thing. So a lot depends on how you present mm. certain things. I mean, there's lying and then there's speculating and they're very different things. And so, so no, I, I, I would disagree with that. All right. Okay. Well, on that disagreement, we are out of time. But before we go... Why don't we end with some recommendations? You got a recommendation for me this week, Jay? Oh, um, can you go first? I sure can. Uh, I recently watched a movie that was a lot of fun uh, in in a weird way. It's called Triangle of Sadness. Uh, it's uh, it's basically about a bunch of very rich people on a yacht and bad things happen. And it's sort of a, a fun, in a way, critique of of capitalism. Uh, Woody Harrelson has a role. It's a lot of fun. Uh, it's it's a it's an interesting movie. I enjoyed it, and of course, I'm always up for a critique of capitalism and poking the super rich as much as possible. So I would recommend Triangle of Sadness. That's mine for today. Oh, okay. Um, gosh. So I'm I'm just going to go. Uh, uh, I will say Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony. Um, that uh, go listen to it. That's my recommendation. <laughs> okay. And and again, this is this was this was a a that is sort of a uh, poking at uh, communism, as it were, and Stalinism, and. Um, one day I'll, I'll, we can talk about that at, at length. I'm, I'm just, that's, uh, actually the Cleveland Orchestra is going to be performing that in a, a couple of weeks. I'm going to be going, but, um, yeah, so I, that's, that's my highbrow recommendation. And, and it's more like, as I couldn't come up with something quickly on the fly, but, um, that's always a good, a good standby. Go and listen to Shostakovich's Fifth All Symphony right. and also read, and also read about it. Um, listen to it first and then read about it. Cause like it, if you read about it first, it might give away the like spoiler alert. So listen to it, read about it, and then listen to it again. And then report back to Jay. It's like a homework assignment you're giving back. people. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, all right. Well, before we do go, I just want to also thank Pierre and Mickey, new uh, supporters. who Actually, both of them took advantage of our, our fairly new Patreon free trial feature. I, I set it to the longest trial period Patreon allows, which is one month. And then after that point, you can either cancel and go back to being a non-supporting listener or decide to become a continuing supporter. Or If, just, if you don't know by then. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, or you, if, 
you know, you can just send me an email, mikeatpoliticsguys.com, if you're not in a position to financially support the show, but you want to keep on getting the mid full midweek show. Hey, that's great. And in fact, in just a minute, Jay and I are going to be recording the midweek show. We're going to be talking about uh, the Biden administration approving the Will Oil Project in Alaska, uh, Ron DeSantis's remarks on Ukraine, and continue our series on American greatness. So we have a bunch of cool stuff, I think, coming up. And we hope if you're a supporter, you, uh, you enjoy that. So and then finally, also, thank you so much to our executive producers, a wonderful group of people, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby. And we'll be back with a new episode for you next week. We hope you join us.